book of uh, Joshua, an Old Testament book. Um, why do we as Christians study pre-Christian Jewish history? Uh, well, that's explained in the Bible itself. Uh, many hundreds of years later, the Apostle Paul uh, becomes mentor to uh, his young assistant, Timothy, and talking about what we ourselves know as the Old Testament, Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, although some of us might find this ancient history either interesting and fascinating, or tedious and boring, or, as I have with bits of Joshua, finding it unsettling and scary, our purpose in looking at the book of Joshua is to learn something that will help us in our lives as Christians these thousands of years later. So let's start with a Joshua recap. The Jewish tribes used to live in the land to which they're now returning. Famine, you'll remember, had forced their emigration to Egypt, where for a few hundred years they had become slaves. The story of their miraculous liberation from slavery in Egypt is uh, remembered and regularly celebrated even today. But although God had liberated them when they initially escaped from Egypt, their lack of confidence and faith meant that they weren't bold enough to occupy and resettle in the land that they'd left behind. And that meant they spent 40 years wandering in the desert. But finally, a new generation, a new generation led by Joshua, had the courage to fight their way back to the land of their inheritance. And by the way, in case we don't get the parallel, uh, the name Joshua uh, means exactly the same as the name Jesus. Names of both Joshua and Jesus mean God is salvation. By trusting God under the leadership of Joshua, the Jewish tribes crossed the River Jordan in exactly the same way they'd crossed the Red Sea coming out of Egypt 40 years earlier. And in retaking their land, there followed a succession of outstanding victories in battle, which brings us to this morning's part of the story. Uh, Joshua 9 tells us how after amazing victories against the cities of Jericho and Ai, they became overconfident. They think they don't need to ask God for his help. And what happens? They end up falling for a trick. Seeing the Jewish victories, the different tribes occupying the territories to the west of the Jordan got together to form a military alliance. So the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites decided they'd fight together rather than what they were often doing, which was having skirmishes between themselves. 
all the tribes to the west of the Jordan joined in, except, that is, the Gibeonites. We read in Deuteronomy what Jewish foreign policy was at that time. The policy was retake all the lands as far as the Lebanon, but sign peace treaties with all the countries beyond. The Gibeonite cities were those closest to where the Israelites now were, and they were on the next list to be attacked, and they knew it. The Gibeonites realized, given how successful Joshua and his army had been, they'd lose in battle. And so they came up with a cunning plan. The cunning plan that Martin read to us in Joshua 9, known to us as the Gibeonite deception. They sent a peace delegation to Joshua, but created the false impression that they'd traveled from, well, at least as far as Lebanon and maybe beyond. It was a donkey delegation, kidded out to look as though they traveled a very long way, old cracked wine sting, uh, skins on the donkey's backs, members of the delegation dressed in worn out clothes, patched sandals, and I love the final creative touch. They took moldy bread with them to suggest they'd been on a long journey, when in fact, they'd only come 30 miles or so. And of course, they lied about where they'd come from. And Joshua and his leaders fell for it. And the Bible tells us why the deception worked. It was complacency on the part of the Israelites. Their recent victories, which had only been won because they so carefully followed God's guidance, had made them overconfident. They thought it was down to them. They forgot that the winning ingredient was God, not their own bravery. Yes, Joshua was suspicious when they turned up. He actually says, why should we believe your story? But he and the leaders were completely taken in. Why were they taken in? Well, clearly they'd been softened up by the flattery of being told that their fame had spread far and wide. But ultimately, it's explained in one short phrase. They sampled their provisions, but they didn't inquire of the Lord. They didn't ask God about it. So let's pause at this point. What must we learn from this? However successful we may become, we must always guard against becoming overconfident and thinking that our successes are down to us. We mustn't be naive. We'll meet people like the Gibeonites who are out to deceive us. As people of God, we need to use more than our own common sense to make wise decisions. Joseph and his leaders relied on their senses, their own senses. They tasted the bread and it was disgustingly mouldy. But they drew the wrong conclusion. 
the book of Proverbs puts it perfectly. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and then what happens? He will make your paths straight. And in Isaiah we read that God's thoughts and ways are not our thoughts and ways. Psalm 25 reminds us it's important to pray that God will teach us how to live and that the godless wisdom of the world is considered foolishness in God's sight. So what happens next with the Gibeonite deception? Joshua and the leaders make a peace treaty which is then ratified by the assembly, their legislative body. Their word had become their bond and just three days later the truth is out. Well we're not told exactly how the news breaks but that was the whole idea of the Gibeonites in the first place. So the chances are that it was one of the Gibeonite delegates who spills the beans. Well, for the Jews, the next phase of their occupation of the promised land becomes impossible. They've just signed a peace treaty with the very cities they next plan to take. Why had the Gibeonites been so confident that their plan would work? Well, because they knew by reputation that once a peace treaty was agreed, the Israelites would keep their word. And they did. Uh, the Israelites made a terrible mistake. Although we read in that passage that the whole assembly grumbled and their leaders had the embarrassment of being so publicly seen to have been taken in, Joshua and the Jewish leaders didn't give in to public opinion. They honoured the agreement. One of the defining characteristics of us as Christians must be determination to keep our word and fulfil our promises, however inconvenient it might be. Well, what did the Jewish assembly have in mind when they decided they had to keep their promise? It was the law. It was the law that had been laid down by Joshua's predecessor, Moses, and it's recorded in the book of Numbers. Uh, Numbers 30, uh, Moses said to the heads of the tribes of Israel, this is what the Lord commands. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said, God takes our promises seriously, even when we don't. That's why Ecclesiastes 5 tells us it's better not to swear before the Lord than to swear an oath and break it later. A deal is a deal. Don't make promises and break them. Don't swear an oath that you don't intend to keep. Don't say it doesn't matter because in God's sight it does God expects his people to be truthful. Well, you've got to hand it to the Gibeonites. They didn't make any excuses. When 
Joshua asked them why they'd lied, he told, they, they told the honest truth. They said, we'd been frightened. We feared for our lives because of you. And that's why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. And so Joshua and the leaders keep their word despite being tricked. In fact, they do exactly what the Gibeonites had suggested in the first place. Part of the Gibeonite deception, you'll remember, had relied on flattery. The first words when the delegation had arrived had been, we are your servants. And that's exactly what they'll become. Well, Joshua tells them they will be cursed and they will become woodcutters and water carriers. So, what's this story all about? The dangers of deception, the folly of not asking God to guide our lives, the importance of keeping your promises? Well, the answer is the story is about all those things, but there's more, much more going on here than these lessons because let's see how it actually turned out. Very next chapter, Joshua 10. Joshua and the Israelites went to war to protect the city of Gibeon from the other Canaanite kings. So you have Joshua and the Gibeonites uh, you've got the Gibeonites fighting alongside the Jews and fighting the other tribes. And that is exactly how Joshua wins one of his greatest victories, because the Gibeonites are on his side. Then notice where the Gibeonites ended up. What Joshua had described as a curse, God transforms to become a blessing. They were to serve at the altar of the Lord, at the place the Lord would choose. Well, what happened at the altar? It was the place of sacrifice. The Gibeonites, who started out as pagans, now end up serving at the very heart of the Jewish religion. Every day they served where animals were sacrificed to the Lord. They had a front seat uh, position, to a front row seat to watch God at work in the divine object lesson of substitution. They learned that blood must be shed for the forgiveness of sin. But you see, not even that is anything like the end of it. Joshua 21. Gibeon is named one of the Levitical cities. That means priests lived there. This guaranteed the inhabitants would have first-hand knowledge of the whole sacrificial system. Gibeon becomes famous for the worship of God. Let's move on again. Uh, we go to the book of Chronicles, where goodness knows how many years later, there's a list of King David's mighty men. And the list includes Ishmael the Gibeonite, a mighty warrior. 
That means he was in David's inner circle. What of David's most trusted men? Then, decades after that, when King Solomon went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, the Lord appeared to him and told Solomon to ask for whatever he wanted. Get this, Gibeon is where Solomon asked the Lord for wisdom. Well, it was clearly a good place to do that, wasn't it? Then we go on. When the Jews returned hundreds of years later from Babylonian captivity, Nehemiah records 95 men of Gibeon were among them. When Nehemiah rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, yes, this was about a thousand years after the time of Joshua, men from Gibeon helped in the construction. Well, what do we make of all this? First, the Israelites kept their promise faithfully, not only while Joshua was alive, but for a thousand years. Uh, the Gibeonites became fully integrated into the life of Israel, some of them serving in high positions. And certainly it must mean that they came to understand the true God and how he at that time needed to be approached by blood sacrifice. Well, you don't need me to tell you what hope we can get from this. God wants what's best for us. God's second best is much, much better than any best we can come up with for ourselves. And God can turn some of our biggest mistakes into blessings. And if you're anything like me, you'll feel you've made some awful decisions in life. Well, some may even have changed its entire trajectory. Billy Graham once said, heaven is full of answers to prayers for which no one ever bothered to ask. How often do we go on uh, plodding on, sometimes blundering, getting ourselves into situations which turn into nightmares because we never stop long enough to say, God, what do you want me to do? Is this your will or does it simply look pretty good to me? Uh, answers to prayers that were never prayed could have saved us all so many kinds of heartaches. But even when we get it badly wrong, our God can transform our failures into his successes. Our God turns curses into blessings. He is our gracious God, our God of second chances. Let's uh, sing now. Uh, we'll stand to sing again and celebrate God's love for us and our response to that grace. <laughs>